listen to your center. What you need to be looking for, especially you know, when in college, just out of college, in grad school, what are the things that light me up? What are the what are the things I think about for free? What are the things that I the topics that I'm like excited to talk about and engage with? Follow those things. Yes, I joke um, all the time that I am the poster child of nonlinear career pathing. Um, and, you know, to, to all kind of college students that are just kind of entering that I have the opportunity to work with on a regular basis, I, you know, there isn't a linear path. It's, it's okay to, to chart your own course. Um, so I did, I started out um, in advertising actually. Um, so working in big ad agencies doing kind of traditional advertising. And it was, um, I'm going to age myself a little bit here, but it was the late nineties and I, you know, this digital thing was emerging and I was like, I think that's kind of the future. Um, and I, I knew that data and being able to work with data was going to be really, really important. And I didn't think I was going to ever get an education on how to work with that data, at least on the path, on the time frame that I wanted um, within kind of the old school advertising industry. Data was always viewed with a healthy bit of skepticism and like it was used to kill good ideas. Um, and so I sort of departed from advertising and worked in management consulting for a while and got to do a lot of segmentation work and one of the uh, projects that I worked on doing a big global segmentation on a really amazing data set that had um, all weblog data plus kind of customer data, a group of us started to wonder what if, um, what, what else could you see in this data? And um, eventually that led to my first startup. And then I kind of had the startup bug and did that for a long time. Um, and, uh, and then I, I made my way back to, to industry um, first, because I had exits from my startups. Um, and then the first kind of return to corporate was a startup. It was Noom. Um, and I was running marketing for them when they were um, small. And then I transitioned to financial services. Um, I did because I... Um, I really like working in uh, industries when they're getting disrupted. I think mm -hmm. it's a really interesting time and financial services at the time I kind of transitioned in uh, was getting reinvented down to the studs, right? Like what is money? What is a bank? What is a finance? Like there is no physicality to the money anymore. Like, and and so it just was everything about the whole model um, was going through transformation. And that made it a super interesting uh, playground from my perspective and um, had an opportunity to build a business within uh, an enterprise. So intrapreneurial. Um, so there was still an entrepreneurial aspect uh -huh. to it, just within the confines of a going concern. Did you work at Noom because you were a swimmer and you? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I worked at Noom because uh, one of my startups had been um, in the behavior change-ish space. And um, I was really, really interested in how um, apps could impact behavior change. Um, and so that was the that was the impetus there. But you also had some experience in in being very healthy in a past life, or you probably still I did. I you do, probably still are I do very enjoy healthy, a but... good workout. Yes, that <laughs> yeah. is for sure. I yeah. don't always eat all that healthily though. My problem oh. now is that I eat like I'm still swimming four hours a day. So <laughs> Oh gosh. No, I, I remember that. I used to swim as well and I for for maybe a year after I stopped, I, I gained a lot of weight. It's a risk, uh, for sure. <laughs> so what was it what was it like at Noom? Um and what prompted the decision to to leave after um a few years? Noom was an amazing adventure. Um, really smart, incredible people. Um, you know, was um was an app that got to ride the the wave of app growth overall it was sort of in at a fortuitous time um and um you know i there was a as in all startups there there happened to be sort of uh strategy shifts along the way to um to your breakouts and so um, there was, there was, this was sort of before their big breakout in 2017, where they were, um, really doing, um, uh, you know, big stuff. So it was, it was the right time for me to transition. And I, um, I picked financial services because I really did want to focus on, um, an industry that was getting reinvented. And also I was specifically looking for entrepreneurial opportunities that were, um, at that intersection of data technology and marketing mm -hmm. and financial services, as I looked at the marketing that was happening within the world of financial services in particular, um, it was still more service bureau oriented. So, um, helping the, the main driver was still very much physical branches, um, in the retail financial world and intermediated sales. And I knew change was coming and kind of marketing was going to be a part of the digital transformation, an important part of the digital transformation of the industry overall. So mm -hmm. that is, um, that's why I was gravitating towards financial services. So you just really like disrupting uh, industries. And I, I, I love seeing the, the little guy win. Um, I think that, that Dodd-Frank and the Durban Amendment did a really good job at allowing smaller banks to play, uh, especially when it comes to interchange in uh, things like banking as a service. So do you find, or do you think, generally speaking, that with the financial institutions that you support now at Kuranos, um, that banking as a service will remain as a large trend? Um, and what are some other trends that you see with the FIs that you support in the middle to near term? Yeah, it's a great question because there's so much, so many different themes that are happening simultaneously um, that are, you know, full of interesting opportunities. Um, kind of what's at the core of the banking as a service from a trend from my perspective is something that we nerdily call at uh, Kiranos the delamination of primacy. So it used to be, right, that like 
you had a relationship with kind of a financial institution that spanned a whole lot, a big portfolio of products and relationships over a long, long period of time. And what the fintechs and the consumer-facing app fintechs have done a really good job at is picking off kind of lucrative aspects of that relationship uh, with kind of best-in-class capabilities um, in solving like a niche job to be done better than like a giant institution could could ever do on their own. Um, I think that trend we we would definitely see continuing. Um, I think what it does from a consumer perspective, right, is it, it ends up offering a range of solutions from the point solutions that are like best in class capability in a single app or or product all the way to the walled gardens. And so if like Venmo is on one end of the spectrum and Chase is on the other end of the spectrum, um, there are flavors emerging in the middle of those. One is um, segment specific uh, solutions that maybe have a smaller subset of a total portfolio. And I think of something like an LVEST in that um, category and then uh, maybe the next level closer to a walled garden, um, but the opposite of a walled garden is like an ecosystem. So what is a constellation of partners beyond financial services and within financial services that are, are um, useful to consumers in a particular way? So I definitely think that trend yeah. will, will continue. But we have some countervailing wins at the same time. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the regulation, uh, you know, the latest uh, Fed proposal to increase inter or decrease the interchange yeah. uh, by 30%, and we see fees in every domain under pressure, like that definitely reduces the degrees of freedom that like a fintech has in terms of business models to disrupt. How big of a, a deal is that 30%? Because that's really, it's that's a really- big deal. Like think about uh, somebody like Chime, Right, they're making um, most of their revenue on the that debit interchange, mm -hmm. um, and that's a I mean a thirty percent haircut to mm -hmm. your revenue model is a pretty big pretty big deal. Will will fintech start pivoting more toward credit card offerings now? Credit card fees are under pressure as well, um, and the lending business, as I think Goldman Sachs has learned, isn't necessarily always easy or straightforward. Um, so, you know, I think that the question mark becomes, how do you play? Um, and, you know, rather than being a, just a disruptor, do you partner? So consolidation is definitely another big trend in the category overall, and I, I think that, um, the sheer scale of the bigger players gives them advantages with data and data gives you advantages with AI mm -hmm. and AI gives you advantages with speed and experience. Um, and so how do smaller uh, fintechs partner more with, uh, with kind of the bigger players or uh, with some of the banding together or enabling the smaller regional banks of which mm -hmm. there are still thousands in the United States to to play together in ways that make them compete more effectively with the with the big 
like Chase. I mean, you see all these fintechs out here that have great value propositions, great data mining capabilities, and and quite frankly, have a such a ridiculous advantage over banks in terms of marketing. Um, but yet, uh, a lot of these fintechs are still in the red and have been in the red since inception. So when are we going to be able to see some of these new fintechs uh, starting to scale finally? Um, or, I mean, what is your take on making growth sustainable and profitable also? Because now, when we have a Fed funds rate where it is now, um, profitability starts to matter now. And you don't just get a bunch of uh, blank check funding from VCs anymore. It's nuclear winter out there is what I hear in terms of the, in terms of the funding. It's, it's uh, certainly the pendulum has swung away from growth at all costs to uh, let's, let's build and run profitable, um, profitable enterprises. I think this is one where some of those headwinds are going to be really challenging for, uh, for some of the fintechs. Um, it is where, partnerships um, rather than competition become uh, an important part of the play. Um, and, you know, on the marketing front, yes, the, the, the fintechs are good at digital marketing, but the, the rest of the um, financial industry has come up the curve pretty quickly on um, digital marketing. And I, I think, the consumer on the street, like it or not, is still, this is a category um, where there's conservatism even on the part of the consumer. And so safety is a big, is still an important part of the consideration factor in, in whether or not somebody's going to engage with a fintech. So yeah. it's it's more challenging. So you have more, more FIs spending a lot more money um, to go after the same pool of consumers, and um, they're profitable and and uh, don't have to worry about runway because they are they're profitable concerns. So I don't know. That's uh, it's it's cloudy with a chance of meatballs would be my uh, my <laughs> prognostication there. I, I think I think it's going to be um, it's going to take creativity. Um, and a sense of cooperation rather than just out-and-out out competition. Well, the only reason a lot of these FIs have an innate advantage over fintechs is because they're incumbent, uh, and they can get away with giving uh, consumers two basis points on their deposits still. Uh, Bank of America, for example, still gives about one to two basis points to consumers for their deposits when they could, quite frankly, be yielding so much more. The only reason that Bank of America is as profitable as it is, is because of that insanely low cost of funds that they have in their general portfolio. But that low cost of funds is um, because of a couple of things. One, their um, their brand um, and, and the investments that they have made in um, capturing those primary relationships with customers. And when you, you know, the fact of the matter about about consumers and their deposits is that only a small percentage of the uh, the U.S. at least or North American population is truly rate sensitive and aware, um, and and looking to move or optimize based on the deposit rate that they're going to get. So, mm -hmm. you know, I I think that. Um, 
there are other things those consumers are getting from Bank of America that make that trade-off worth it hmm. from the consumer's perspective. I would think with a larger deposit amount, though, you wouldn't be as you would be much more rate sensitive because there is actual real yield that you can get out of making a move. No question about it. Uh, it is definitely correlated with with wealth, but there are grades of that for sure, and it's certainly something that uh, Kiranos has a lot of intelligence on, and that is, you know even at the upper end of the deposit size spectrum or wealth spectrum, there are gradients of uh, price elasticity uh, for, for different reasons. So on the one end, you have the super, what we call hot money that just chases the latest rate and is uh, it's like a game and a sport and you're looking to optimize the yield. Um, but, you know, there are degrees of less rate sensitive, but still rate aware. And the, um, you know, banks that know how to, um, to target and, and put the right kind of rates in front of in front of customers based on their elasticity is a huge competitive advantage. And I'd also like to bring up uh, the, the failures of uh, various banks that we've had recently and how those might have made consumers more conservative when, when choosing a bank with uh, a large size of assets versus a, a bank that's uh, more regional or has a small asset size. What have you seen some of the regional banks that you work with potentially doing about this new threat of a overnight bank run? Um, so it, it was uh, definitely a, a very uh, a very interesting uh, environment in the March April uh, May timeframe. No no doubt about it. And the challenge for regional banks is even the press called it a regional bank uh, you know crisis. Um, and there definitely was in certain pockets a flight to safety, um, but. Uh, I think most of the um, most of the super regionals and and many of the regionals are still in um, they're in good good shape. I mean, I you know I I think it was scary because uh, for a little bit, but I think that has largely subsided. Mm -hmm. And I think now the challenge for the regional bank players um, is how do you rebuild trust. Yeah. Um, in in kind of a durable way. But it still seems very valid to be afraid of banks that particularly have a lot of mark-to-market losses in fixed income. 100%. I mean, fixed income has taken a 53% hit, uh, especially long-dated maturity. The TLT uh, ETF is down 53%, peak to trough at this point. Yep. So, I mean, is, are consumers valid in, in still being very afraid of, of regional banks? Um, I, you know, I, I think that our, I, I think that our banking system is healthy and, you know, I, I think that most institutions are just, are doing fine. Mm -hmm. So right. I think that over, over, over kind of shouting fire there is actually detrimental to I think and risky. So I wouldn't. I no. I don't. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of what got us in that place originally. Uh, the SVB failure was was largely based on uh, a bunch of venture capital firms saying that there was a fire when there might not have been. Exactly. 
So what have a lot of those startup companies done that have uh, been caught in the wake of, of the SVB failures and uh, First Republic? So I think that our government uh, stepped in and, and also worked with um, the kind of existing financial institutions to absorb um, in ways that really largely protected um, any of the um, technology companies that were exposed in that. And I think, you know, have found very good, good buyers for the books of business that were um you know, that were in trouble within the context of, of SBB um, as an example. So I, I, you know, I think, I think our government did a great job. And I think the leaders of the larger financial institutions that absorbed um, those did a, did a good job in protecting the American economy from uh, a meltdown. No, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and there were some people that, that went around saying that, oh, the federal government is just going to bail them out again, no matter what they do, yada, yada, yada. A lot of sensationalism, as always, in the media. Um, but I do think that, uh, especially based on what a previous guest mentioned on our podcast, uh, that a lot of banks now are starting to become afraid of taking on new initiatives uh, in this point in the market because of the, the high Fed funds rate and uh, headwinds in the bond market and the equity markets? So there's no doubt about it that the fundamental business model is under pressure um, from multiple directions, right? You mentioned the high cost of deposits, the fee revenues, the um, you know, the, even the acquisition of getting new into your franchise is, is getting more and more expensive. So um, you know, it is, it's a challenging environment, um, but this is where I would see um, the players that are able to, one, identify where on the spectrum of, um, you know, from individual point solution with best in class capabilities to walled garden, where on that spectrum are you going to play? Define your value proposition clearly, and then have a, um, I, I think digital transformation is still, it, it's not nearly worked all the way through uh -huh. this category. Um, and there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity for smart players to um, really push the envelope on, on digital transformation. So yes, I think in general investments are being viewed more conservatively than they were three years ago or four years ago, but there is still um, plenty of green shoots that are, mm -hmm. that are, that are there and out there. That's good to hear because, I mean, we look everywhere on the news right now and everyone's calling for a recession. And I, I, I take it you don't share that same view that the U.S. is. No, I share that. I share that view. Just I, I, I share that it's, as I say, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Um, you know, I, I think. Um, but that some of the best businesses are built during recessions. So yeah. I think it is, it, you know. Um, and this is where well-run businesses with profitability and deep pockets are advantaged um, in these kinds of in these kinds of environments. So I don't I, I do see I do see the clouds. I do read the headlines and agree with the headlines on sort of the general macro environment. And 
even in a negative macro environment, there's still innovation opportunity and investment opportunity. So I, I would follow that up with the question of, um, with all these headwinds in the market, what are some of the um, most well uh, What are some of the characteristics of the most well-run companies that you have ever had the chance to work with? Oh, um, certainly a clear, true north, right? An absolute um, clarity around what the company's uh, vision and mission are. Um, I do think, and I have for even when it wasn't um, wasn't the the norm in the teens, in the roaring teens, um, that profitability matters, right? And that not growth at all costs isn't necessarily the right thing to chase. That building good, durable businesses is uh, absolutely. Um, even though it may be a little slower mm-hmm. um, and a little less sexy in in general, it is a um, the best the best companies I've ever worked for and with have paid attention to not just growth but sustainable growth and profitable growth um, and aligned investment strategies and culture and all the rest of it around that. Mm-hmm. What kind of an overall team effort does it take to run a business that is very well-rounded, like you mentioned? Um, I mean, there's there are multiple different philosophies behind uh, governance and startups and even larger corporations. Which ones do you tend to ascribe to and which ones do you think work the best? Um, by governance, do you mean like holacracy versus like, so, yeah. like what is what, yeah like um, I mean I'm the CEO I'm the big bad guy that you can't approach ever versus I'm the CEO <laughs> coming my doors always open right so transparency is always I think a very important um, value and and it characteristic of the companies that I have. Um, seen do really, really well, and I have experienced um, in positive ways. So transparency, I think, and openness, right? Not not rigidly hierarchical, um, are are generally conducive to that kind of um, that kind of environment. I think, um, and we call it at Kiranos kind of scientific spirit, um, but just this idea of. Um, curiosity about hypotheses and then looking to validate those hypotheses with data and experimentation rather than the smartest person in the room came up with the answer and sort of pushed it out. Uh But that there's a culture of exploring a problem space thoroughly and analytically and testing into and you know winnow, winnowing in on or, or narrowing in on kind of the optimal the optimal approach. I think that is a cultural strain that is um, also associated with um, good healthy companies. Um, generally, that kind of uh, culture rewards um, curiosity, a diversity of thought, um, and also is rigorous and, Mm -hmm. and thorough. So all good things. And then, you know, I, I really do think, um, company cultures that put an emphasis on 
teamwork and the we versus the I. So, you know, the in the old school financial services, the sort of master of the universe was definitely um, kind of a thing. Um, in this in this new world, I would say it is much more about the we than the than the me. And uh -huh. companies that are aligned with that, I think, are doing better generally because mm -hmm. that also promotes the diversity of thought, which makes for better hypotheses, which makes for better outcomes. So, Sarah, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on culture, and I mean this because, or I, I want to ask you this because there's a lot of people in my generation specifically and people at the Kelly School that um, are worried about sharing their opinion with someone above them at times and even being critical of what people above them um, believe or have done. So what, what are some occasions where you've had someone criticize you that was below you and how, I mean, what kind of a culture do you uh, purport in that realm? Yeah, it's a it's a really important question uh, because we spend a lot of time at work um, and what we do is a big part of who we are. Um, and if you feel like you can't uh, speak your truth or you can't um, bring your whole self, that is uh, that's a problem and that will impact mm -hmm. negatively outward. Um, so I invite uh, feedback all the time. Um, and I think there are, you know, a couple, a couple of um, ways that feedback has, you know, will make its way. Um, one is direct, right? So um, I'll give a, for example, we uh, in the not too distant past have, you know, a, we're, we're scaling on something and scaling is probably one of the hardest uh, challenges in business because, mm -hmm. um, usually what got you to here isn't going to get you to there. And, yeah. uh, and it feels like everything's breaking and, um, and yet it, it's, it's not, it's just, you have, everything needs to change, um, so that you can operate kind of at a new scale level. And, um, I, we were in the midst of that and I didn't do a good enough job. Um, I think explaining to the team, um, kind of, or contextualizing that tension with the team of like, okay, we are in this scale moment and we have been operating this way and now we're going to have to change. And that, you know, feels like things are breaking, but they're not. And so I was pushing um, for us to, to move at a, at a certain pace and there was resistance. And mm -hmm. I was definitely getting feedback that, um, you know, I, um, I, I was pushing a little too hard mm -hmm. and I was grateful for the feedback, incredibly grateful and, um, had an opportunity to basically open the door, open the conversation and, and basically have people give me unfiltered feedback for a yeah. bit. And I listened um, and then was able to take that and uh, adjust our adjust our course and adjust my communication within the context of our course. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was grateful for this week's right there mm -hmm. and the and the feedback, you know. So that's that's an example. I think there's another piece which is process oriented, um, and making sure as as a leader as a 
an organization, you have a process in place for planning, for quarterly objective process uh, review and design, for sprint feedback, right? Kind yeah. of from the big picture all the way down to the day-to-day -day operations. You have processes in place that allow for debriefs. How'd we do? How are we doing? What's going well? What's not going so well? Um, did we, you know, did we like how we did that? Should we change? Like, and those are pressure relief valves, if you will, um, that I think makes space for productive feedback. I think that something that a lot of juniors hesitate with, at least, is looking at this from an expected value uh, lens. So what, what is the most that I can gain if I speak up to my manager and say that you're wrong? Um, the most I can gain is maybe my five seconds of fame where, where someone um, looks at me and says, hey, you may know more or you may be more well-versed on this topic. The, the maximum loss I can incur is losing my job and my reputation. So, so a lot of people look at this and say, hey, I'm just starting out my career. Maybe I just need to shut up and grind, right? And look, there's uh, there's some wisdom, right, in understanding uh, relative experience levels, and and in any, there's a good way and an and an unproductive way to have conversations about potential areas of conflict, mm -hmm. right? And you're wrong. Generally, doesn't work for anybody at yeah. any level at any point in their career. Um, it's you know, I think the the general what works is. Assume positive intent. What about this decision about this course of action? Um, you know, is does my superior or superior's superior have information about that I may be lacking? What are they seeing about this, about where we're going, that's having them make this decision? Get curious as opposed to oppositional. Hmm. And you'll have no problems uh, having a voice in the mix that's yeah. productive and uh, potentially counter to uh, the prevailing wisdom and in a productive way. Yeah. No, I, I love that piece. And I, it kind of brings up a good follow-up question is, is how can I as a junior from the first day start building an amazing relationship with a manager? And you, is it going out for happy hours? Is it... Um, you know, just walking over and, and chatting? Is it actually in-person work that, that fosters really good relationships? Um, oh, the $10 million question of the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think um, there is glue that happens in person that can't be replicated just on video alone. Um, but I also um, believe that hybrid is... Uh, pretty incredible way to work. Um, and so it's a not anything that's a, a either or is a false, like uh -huh. usually a false trade off. There's usually a yes and in there. Um, so back to your original question, how can somebody just getting started out, like what is the best way to develop a strong relationship with your superior? Um, honestly, it's to to love what you do and do a great job at what you do mm -hmm. and to look for ways that you can proactively add value, 
um, think two or three steps ahead about what might might be coming next and proactively, um, you know, offer to to jump in on things, you, you know, anything that is connected to doing doing your work really well um, and adding value in what you're doing is going to be a winning strategy. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean killing yourself, working a hundred hours a week. It just means there, there are two ways to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a checklisty way like, yep, I did it. Yep. I did it. Yep. I did it. Right. But you're not bringing creativity or energy or why am I doing this? It, what are, what is the objective function of this particular step? And do I need to, am I thinking about it in the right way? Um, that the latter is what is what's valued. Mm -hmm. Um, in in it what it's what adds value yeah. um and so i i think that goes a long way i think periodic in-person interactions are magic and glue mm -hmm. um and i think um but i don't think i think we're in a world where facetime and mandatory facetime is going the way going of the away. dodo bird yeah so what are some of the best characteristics you've ever seen in someone who was an intern under you or a junior, um, someone that worked under you that, that made you really, them really stand out to you? Um, I'm lucky in that I get to work with a lot of those all the time. <sighs> um, and so I'm, uh, you know, I'm lucky in that regard. The, the sort of common strains are, um, intellectual curiosity about the work, um, a, an, an ability to communicate and a, communicate on um, two fronts, communicate about ideas that, that they may have about the work and how those ideas may bring fresh perspective into the mix, but also um, communication on um, their understanding of what you've asked them to do and like clarifying, not being afraid to ask clarifying questions like, oh, you're asking me to do this and this and this. I think it's because you want that. Is that what you really want? Um, mm -hmm. So that kind of um, capability. And then um, communication in terms of boundaries, right? Like I, you're, I, this is, this is my capacity and this thing adds puts me over capacity. Yeah. What would you like to come off, right? That ability is also, um, you know, in, in the best performers that I work with, um, something that, that they have in spades. Mm -hmm. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. And before we cap this episode off, uh, I want to ask the one question we ask everyone. Um, what advice, what's one piece of advice that you would give to someone who's a current college student who may not know precisely what they want to do with their life. They may be um, SOL on an internship, who knows, right? Um, no matter what's going on in their life right now, what is one thing that they could put into action today, right now, that would vastly improve their, their odds at being successful five, 10 years down the road? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. Um, I would say one thing 
Oh, I'm thinking about 10 things. Um, trying to get it down to the one thing. I would say the one thing that um, that you could do is listen to your center. What you need to be looking for, especially at, you know, when in college, just out of college, in grad school, what are the things that light me up? What are the what are the things I think about for free? What are the things that I, the topics that I'm like excited to talk about and engage with? Follow those things because when you are connected to work that lights you up, you're going to be having fun. When you're having fun, you are going to be excelling generally. So like I would say like, listen to your gut when you're in situations where it's performative, for somebody else. And even if you're good at it and you don't love it, like it's going to come out sideways, uh, yeah. down the line. And so connect with the, what you, who you are and, and mm -hmm. what you, what you like and follow, follow those threads. They'll take you far. Is, did you take your own piece of advice when you came out of college? I did. So I went to college thinking I wanted to be uh, a diplomat. So I went to huh. like foreign service school, like studying, and I, I got a year in and I was like, oh my God, this, I, this is not for me. Um, and I studied like a generic kind of econ business. Um, and when I graduated, my choices were like CIA, FBI, State Department, or consulting and eye banking. And I, none <laughs> of those options were like going to work for me. And, uh, so I got a, um, I, I, I had a great study abroad year. Um, and I was like, I wonder if there's a visa to go work in Europe. Um, and I could just, you know, if I work in a bar, like that's fine. I'll just, you know, <laughs> travel around and find myself. And, um, I got a UNAC visa to go work in the UK for a year. And wow. when I was there, Again, I was expecting to work in a pub, um, but I handed my resume to anybody who would talk to me and I ended up getting a job in advertising and I was like, oh, people get paid to do this? It's kind of fun. And so then I was kind of off like a shot. And then I got experience in the ad agency world and I, there were great, amazing things about it. And I realized hmm, I'm missing the data part. I'm missing the technology part. Like, okay, mm -hmm. let me go follow that thread. And then the working for myself and startup, like I followed that thread. So I have been a thread follower my entire life uh -huh. um, and it's worked out pretty well. So I highly, highly That's recommend. so sweet. Uh, it's it's <laughs> awesome to see that that people, uh, the times haven't changed really. There's, there's a lot of people now that still want to go abroad and be a digital nomad and, and, and travel the world. Um, yes. There, there's, there's Buddhist uh, teachings that show that becoming experience rich is a lot more valuable uh, in terms of overall happiness than becoming uh, rich in, in personal possessions. It's so true. And there's a, it, there's a book and I actually do tell new grads to go read this book. It's called range. Um, and it is about when you're young in your life, your part of your job is to get a broad 
broad set of exposure to different things. It's like trying on clothes, right? Uh -huh. What looks good on me? What fits me? Um, and <sighs> so that's your, that should be your most important thing is like ex <laughs> getting exposure and following those things that light you up. That's so amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this was episode nine of the FinTech at IU podcast. Um, as usual, thank you to the IU Media School for letting us use uh, your spaces today. And thank you to Dr. Monaco and Dr. Dokulich for their continued support uh, in, in bringing this organization to where it is today. Have a good day, everyone, and thank you for listening in.